for today. I told Dr. Talbot on Sunday, I said, I know we're supposed to follow the example of our pastor, but this is getting a little ridiculous. I'm going to borrow his chair today. I did get my stitches taken out Friday. It's doing better, but I think I did a little bit too much yesterday and it started leaking a little bit, so I was like, eh, better use the chair today. Um, so my plan originally this week was to pick up from Romans 9, where I left off in the last sermon, starting in verse 14. But as I got to working on it, that's not where I ended up. <laughs> where I ended up with is basically kind of a recap of the last sermon, as well as extending some application a little bit. So I hope this doesn't bore you today by recapping it, but I think there's something very important going on here in this chapter that I think really needs to be emphasized. But before we do that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we now open your word to explore it, I pray that you'd be with us today, that you would challenge us, Father, you would convict us, that you would strengthen us in your word, by the power of the Spirit, all to your praise and honor in Christ's name. Amen. So if you recall, in that last sermon I expressed the fact that there are many professing Christians out there who have a problem with how we as confessionally reformed people interpret Romans chapter 9. And of course the main issue centers around this idea of election. Now, that Paul is talking about election is plainly obvious to anyone who can read the text. For Paul says in verses 10 through 13, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and not had done anything, uh, had not done nothing, excuse me, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And so understand something. Nobody who embraces the Bible can escape a doctrine of election. John Calvin did not invent the word. The Reformers didn't invent it. Augustine didn't invent it. God uses this word numerous times throughout Scripture and uses a word like predestined, as we saw in Romans 8. In Ephesians 1, I point this out because I never forget the first time I brought up the words election and predestined to a group of classmates down in New Orleans, the seminary. We were playing basketball, and then we, after we get done, we pray, and then we go off to class or work or wherever. This was back in 98, so it was a, it was a while ago, but I remember like it just happened yesterday. So... I had no idea who John Calvin was or Augustine or Luther or any of these people. I never even heard of Spurgeon, never heard of the word Calvinist. All I knew is that I'm sitting here reading the Bible. I'm trying to get myself ready for classes in the fall full time. And Romans 9 and Ephesians, it just, it just hit me like a, like a Mack truck. Like, what in the world is this about? And so when I bring this up to the classmates, they were like, well, you, you sound like a Calvinist. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? What does that got to do with what I just said? I'm asking about Romans 9 and Ephesians 1. I, that's where I got the words. That's where I got the terminology. 
Well, I didn't get very far with them, nor with the seminary in general, and for that and other various reasons, I eventually left. But again, understand something. All who are going to take the Bible seriously have a doctrine of election. You simply cannot avoid it apart from ripping pages out of your Bible. The real question is this. What does Paul mean by election here in Romans 9? Is it salvific? Is it about individuals? Is it about nations? Or is it both? And what is this election based on? Does God elect based on what he foresees in the future? Or does he take into consideration what a person does, good or bad? These are the questions and debates Christians have had over this doctrine. And there are many who argue that election here has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with individuals. They say the Reformed historically have got it wrong. And so one of the main purposes of my last sermon was for us to just kind of step back and consider the overall context of Romans 9 and how it flows out of the previous chapters. If you want to rightly handle your Bible, and in particular this issue, the last and worst thing for you to do is just parachute down into verses 10 through 13 and then try to explain what election means and ignore the context. That's how cults operate. That's how heresies get started. Trust me, I've been there, done that. Verses 10 through 13 are part of an argument that Paul is developing. And the immediate context and reason for his argument begins in verse 1, where he stated, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Well, why, Paul? Why do you have such great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart, especially after what you just said in Romans chapter 8, one of the most glorious chapters in the Bible? Well, he tells us, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So what's the cause of his great sorrow? He's looking around and sees that a great majority of people around him reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being accursed and cut off from Christ, the Greek there is anathema, is a salvific issue. There's simply no other way to interpret this. Paul's not grieving over the fact that some people are gifted with certain talents and others are not. They're given different talents. He's grieving over their unbelief and over their rebellion. He's grieving over the fact that they are accursed and cut off from Christ. And to make matters worse, these aren't ordinary people, for these are his kinsmen according to the flesh, Israelites. And who were the Israelites? They were a very special people among the nations of the earth that God chose to reveal his eternal covenant of redemption with. We read of that calling and of those privileges in verses 4 and 5, where he says they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In other words, this is the visible church on earth. This was the covenant community of God. And yet, the majority of this community reject, rejected God and his word. They rejected his gospel. They rejected his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And know here in verse 5 what Paul says about this Messiah. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is what? 
God over all, blessed forever. And so, yes, as regards his human nature, Jesus was born among them. But there's more to this Jesus person than just the human nature. Jesus is God over all, blessed forever. He is the incarnate Lord, as Pastor Enro has been demonstrating for us lately from the Gospel of John. Listen to Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This, beloved, is why we confess in our confession, chapter 8, paragraph 2, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now, why do I highlight that? This is the visible church, the covenant community of God. They not only rejected Christ, but by extension were the very enemies of God himself. Let that sink in. I, I, just, I can't emphasize this enough. Let that sink in for a moment. How is it that the very people whom God called out from among all the nations of the earth to make for himself a people, a people he privileged beyond measure, a people with whom God spoke and revealed himself, how is it that these people, by and large, don't believe God and are his enemies? Well, it certainly raises the question, why? Why is this happening? And one of the objections that's raised right here in our text is, well, did God fail? God made all these promises. Did he, did he not keep his word? Is he the failure? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, at this point, you could come up with a number of reasons for backing up the claim that the word of God has not failed. For example, one could argue, well, God did everything he was supposed to do, but ultimately he leaves it up to us as individuals to exercise our free will and make that word effectual. That's one argument. But is that the reason Paul gives? No, in fact, it ends up being just the opposite. The reason he gives is this, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then he tells us in verse 8 what he means by that. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
In other words, God never promised that every Israelite would be saved. And it's not that being a physical descendant from Abraham is a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. It's a marvelous privilege. Hence the reason Paul is so grieved over all this. But the fact is, being a physical descendant of Abraham alone is not enough. There has to be more, and that more is one must be a child of promise. One must be elected. Now, here's where I start to extend a little bit from my last sermon. What I want you to consider now is the ramifications of this with respect to Baptist theology and even with those who identify with us as Reformed Presbyterians but who argue for Pado communion based on the fact that they assume that their children are regenerate or, or, or guaranteed to be regenerate. Beloved, the election of Romans 9 cuts through both of these errors. First of all, with respect to Baptist theology, Romans 9 clearly demonstrates the reality of a visible and invisible church and of a visible church that includes our children. Notice here, Paul speaks of all who are descended from Israel and those who are Abraham's offspring. This is natural descent. When Paul seeks to demonstrate the principle of election, he does so using a single family. He speaks of Rebecca and her twin children. And so our confession states, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, it's not confined to one nation as before the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children. And is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And if you look up one of the proof texts that they used for this statement, together with their children, they quote Romans 11, verse 16, which is an extension of Romans 9. And what does it say there in Romans 11, verse 16? If the dough offered as fruit, first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The same principle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 7. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. That is, they are set apart. They are of those who will participate in the ministry, the oracles, the ordinances of God, and the gathering of the saints. Now, to be fair, Baptists do use the words visible and invisible, but they don't do it in the same way that we do. Well, you heard from our confession. Now hear how they word it, how they altered it in the London Baptist Confession of 1689. This is how they took the paragraph I just read from our confession. This is how they altered it. They said, All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel in obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation, are and may be called visible saints. And as such ought all particular congregations be constituted. Do you notice something missing? They kicked the children out of the visible church. But beloved, that's not the assumption of Paul here 
in Romans 9. In fact, being of physical descent from Abraham really meant something. And it's the very reason why their unbelief is so shocking and creates the dilemma here in Romans 9 to start with. There are people who are set apart from the rest of the world and are given privileges from God that others don't have, namely the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And yet, as Romans 11 goes on to say about these branches, but if some of the branches were broken off, is this talking about people losing their salvation? No. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, he's talking about Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I, may, that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Did you hear that in verse 21? Natural branches. We've got half of our church here are natural branches. But they're natural branches who can be broken off from the tree. Well, that then leads me to the other error of those who presume that their natural branches are of the elect solely because they're natural branches. Romans 9, 10 and 11 as well, refute that, refutes that as well. Do we not see here in Romans 9 that not only does God distinguish between the world versus those of the visible church, but God goes even deeper than that. God divides even among those of the visible church in order that his purpose of election might stand. Again, notice what Paul does. He hones in on a single family and divides between two twin children, demonstrating what? That God chose one and not the other. And he did so before they were even born or had done anything good or bad. Beloved, election not only divides between those of the world and the visible church, it also divides among the visible church. Election even cuts through families. And for whatever reason, some of our fellow Presbyterians have forgotten this. It's actually one of the biggest obstacles I had. When I first started looking into infant baptism, I was hearing from Presbyterians who presumed that our children are saved just because they're born to Christian parents. I could not get around that. It just kept bugging me until I finally realized that they're not really representing the true confessional view. But, beloved, is that not the warning of Romans 11? They were broken off because of their unbelief, the natural branches. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Is this not one of the points of Romans chapter 9? Again, Paul, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of the pagans living out in the country that know nothing of God or of the Bible. Or No, for my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Is it not the case here that a majority of Jews then, physical descendants of Abraham, were cut off, removed from the visible church 
because of their unbelief. Nowhere do you see Paul here in chapters 9, 10, or 11 presume that just because these people were natural branches that they were okay. No, natural branches do get cut off and are thrown into the fire if they do not obey the truth that has been delivered to them. In Matthew 3, it says, But when he, that is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus in John 8 said this to a bunch of Jews. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Notice here, Jesus distinguishes between being a disciple versus those who are truly disciples. There's a distinction. He will go on to say, verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, well, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, not, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Does that sound like something a pagan would say? No. Do you get who he's talking to here? We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Well, this is all Romans 9 here. And what I want to emphasize to you today, again, I know I'm repeating myself. I just cannot stress this enough. This danger that's expressed here with these people and these Jews is just as real today with you as it was back then. I fear for many in the church today. I fear that there are many who presume that God is pleased with them merely because they were born into a Christian family, they were baptized when they were a baby, 
They attend church every week and so on. But as soon as they walk out of the church doors, they go on with their lives as if none of this matters. The the thought of God in his word, the thought of his law, of his commandments, what he requires and what he forbids, none of it factors into their daily lives at all. Just don't care. When it comes to what am I going to do for a living? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to date? Who am I going to marry? How am I going to raise? They never once think about God and his word and how it factors in. They don't care. They live like atheists, but they'll be in the pew every Sunday. And I think if they were to really be honest with themselves and ask these tough questions, they would admit that they don't really believe any of this stuff. They don't trust God. But they continue on with the charade. They continue on with the act. Maybe they keep coming to church because they don't want to upset their parents or they don't want to upset some friends or family. But deep down inside, they don't believe God and his word. Friend, I say to you this afternoon, the day is coming when that charade is going to stop. You're comfortable now because you think you have everything under control. Everything is at peace. But that's going to come to an end. Jesus taught this in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then in verse 36, when he left the crowds and went into the house, the disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy enemy who sown them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom. Did you notice that? They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Beloved, the thing about weeds is they can closely resemble wheat until the grain is produced. Now, I'm no wheat expert. I've never, not think, well, offset ate it, but I don't think I've been around in the fields. <laughs> but I can tell you this. If you go to my house right now, Jordan just cut the grass a couple days ago, so it's nice and cut and edged and looks good. And you look at it, man, that's a nice-looking lawn. 
Let that thing sit for about a week and, well, now, just a couple days, but <laughs> let that yard sit for a little while. You'll notice something. The grass will grow, but then the weeds will get like 10 feet tall. And it's like, I remember, you know, we went through a drought and then, it, you know, because all the stuff was low, you couldn't really, I mean, you can, you can tell if you look close enough, but if you're just kind of glad you're looking at it, you, you can't really see it. I remember there was a drought and then it started pouring like crazy and over the next couple of days and all this stuff just, just exploded. And I remember looking at my backyard, I was like, man, I had no idea I had so much weed in my, in my backyard. It was crazy. The point is, the weeds can closely resemble wheat until harvest time, until you let it grow a little bit. There are many within the visible church, possibly even some of you here today, who outwardly resemble the real thing. Outwardly, you identify with the church. Outwardly, you give the appearance of being a disciple. But inwardly, you know it's all fake that you're putting on a show. You know you don't believe any of this. And you're comfortable for now because the master of the field is letting you grow with the wheat until the harvest comes. But understand this, beloved, the harvest is coming. And the reapers will identify you for who you truly are, and they will gather you along with all the other weeds and throw you into the eternal lake of fire. You know, after I had preached on this last time, Pastor Enro made a reference to Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That sermon, probably the most popular sermon ever delivered on, in America, it was the catalyst for the Great Awakening. What some people may not know, or perhaps have forgotten, was Edward's target audience in that sermon. Here's how he, the, the sermon centered around Deuteronomy 32:35, which reads, Vengeance is mine in recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. This is how Edward begins that sermon. In this verse is threatened the vengeance of God on the wicked, unbelieving Israelites who were God's visible people and who lived under the means of grace. But who, notwithstanding all God's wonderful works towards them, remained, as Deuteronomy 32.28 indicates, void of counsel, having no understanding in them. Under all the cultivations of heaven, they brought forth bitter and poisonous fruit, as in the two verses next preceding the text. The expression I have chosen for my text, their foot shall slide in due time, seems to imply the following things related to the punishment and destruction to which these wicked Israelites were exposed. Did you catch that? You know, you may hear the title of that sermon and think, yeah, Edward, call them sinners out. Get on them pagans. And yet, as Edward notes, the warning was for wicked, unbelieving Israelites. It was for God's visible people who lived under the means of grace. In other words, the warning is for you. 
and me. Well, Edwards closed with these words, and I want to read this as as a closing for myself. He said, How dreadful is the state of those who are daily and hourly in the danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again, however moral and strict, sober and religious they may otherwise be. Oh, that you would consider it, whether you be young or old. There is reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be the subjects of this very misery to all eternity. We know not who they are and what seats they sit or what thoughts they have now. It may be they are now at ease and hear all these things without much disturbance and are now flattering themselves that they are not the persons, promising themselves that they shall escape. If we knew there was one person but one in the whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. If we knew who it was, what an awful sight would it be to see such a person. How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter cry over him? But alas, instead of one, how many is it likely will remember this discourse in hell? And would it be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time, even before this year is out? And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seats of this meeting house in health, quiet, and secure should be there before tomorrow morning. Those of you that would finally continue in a natural condition that shall keep out of hell the longest will be there in a little time. Your damnation does not slumber. It will come swiftly and in all probability very suddenly upon many of you. You have reason to wonder that you are not already in hell. It is doubtless the case of some of whom you have seen and are known that never deserved hell more than you and that heretofore appeared as likely to have been alive, now alive as you. Their case is past all hope. They are crying in extreme misery and perfect despair. But here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor, damned, helpless souls give for one day's opportunity such as you now enjoy? And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands and calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south, many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in and are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. How awful it is to be left behind at such a day, to see many who, uh, others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in, in such a condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of the people of Suffield, where they are flocking from day to day to Christ? Are there not many here who have lived long in the world and are not to this day born again? And so are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and have done nothing ever since they have lived but treasure up wrath against the day of wrath? Oh, sirs, your case in an especial manner is extremely dangerous. Your guilt and hardness of heart is extremely great. Do you not see how generally persons of your years are passed over and left in the present remarkable and wonderful dispensation of God's mercy? You have need to consider yourselves and to wake thoroughly out of sleep. You cannot bear the fierceness and wrath of the infinite God. And you, young men and young women, will you 
will you neglect this precious season which you now enjoy when so many others of your age are renouncing all youthful vanities and flocking to Christ? You especially have now an extraordinary opportunity, but if you neglect it, it will soon be with you as with those persons who spent all the precious days of youth in sin and are now come to such a dreadful pass in blindness and hardness. And you, children, who are unconverted, do you not know that you are going down to hell to bear the dreadful wrath of that God who is now angry with you every day and every night? Will you be content to be the children of the devil when so many other children in the land are converted and are becoming the holy and happy children of the King of Kings? And so let everyone that is yet, without, that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women or middle-aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence. This acceptable year of the Lord, a day of such great favor to some, will doubtless be a day of, of as remarkable vengeance to others. Men's hearts harden and their guilt increases apace at such a day as this if they neglect their souls. And never was there so great danger of such persons being given up to hardness of heart and blindness of mind. God seems now to be hastily gathering his elect in all parts of the land and probably the greater part of adult persons that shall ever be saved will be brought in now in a little time. And that will be as it was on the great outpouring of the Spirit upon the Jews in the Apostles' day. The election will obtain, the rest will be blinded. Blinded. If this should be the case with you, you will eternally curse this day and will curse the day that ever you was born to see such a season of the, of the pouring out of God's Spirit and will wish that you had died and gone to hell before you had seen it. Now, undoubtedly it is, as it was in the days of John the Baptist, the axe is in an extraordinary manner laid at the root of the trees, that every tree which brings forth, brings not forth good fruit may be hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom, haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you, escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. So again, I ask, have you seriously contemplated the truths of which are delivered to you every week with the means of the word preached and taught and through the sacraments. And if you're not, what are you waiting for? Do not presume upon the Lord that you're going to have tomorrow. Hebrews 3. For we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Again, this is he's writing this to the visible church. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Love, that is just as much of a danger for you today as it was to them in the days of Moses. Are you accepting and receiving and resting upon Christ alone for your salvation? Or are you just going through the motions? Thinking that somewhat because you've outwardly identified with this church, even outwardly been baptized with water, that that is enough. Don't be like those of that first generation that came out of Egypt. Don't be like those that Paul's warning about here in Romans 9, his great sorrow and unceasing anguish for. Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Let us pray.